Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Today on Phronesis, we have John Antonakis. I have been looking forward to this conversation for some time. John, he's many things. He's Swiss, Greek, and South African. He is a practitioner. He is a scholar. He is an editor. He's a professor of organizational behavior. He has written in Harvard Business Review and the world's best academic journals, as well as Fast Company. He does TED Talks, and he consults multinational organizations. And of course, we're going to have your full bio in the show notes. But John, does that capture in a general sense who you are as an individual, at least on the professional side? Well, you missed out uh, gardener and cook. So uh, I love to cook and I love to garden. And uh, I have worked as a professional chef in the army. Well, not, I, I don't know if that's considered professional, but yeah. And I like playing music. So there you go. What do you play? I play the guitar and I play um, an obscure instrument called the Cretan Lira. It's uh, tuned like a violin. Um, it's got an analog in Calabria in southern Italy called the Lira Calabrese, the Badulka in Bulgaria. So it sounds like a fiddle. You play it on your knee like an upside down, like a little cello, and, and you play it with a bow. Really? Oh, that's incredible. Now, what are some of your favorite concerts you've attended over the years? What comes to mind? Black Sabbath. A long time ago with Tony Omi, so I, I like heavy rock. You do? Okay, so what other heavy, heavy rock do you like? Iron Maiden, Led Zeppelin, you know, you know, not heavy metal, but, you know, pretty good heavy rock. Oh, yeah. Well, Iron Maiden was just nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with Foo Fighters. So we would have a similar heritage. I think probably one of my favorites is Rush. But I started with Led Zeppelin, started, then went to Rush, and went to a lot of prog metal. So Stephen Wilson... From your neck of the woods, Porcupine Tree, and some other... I, I like a hard-driving music with some kind of meaning associated with it. But that's wonderful. So you're a guitarist. I just picked up the guitar over the holidays. So I've been learning chords. I've been playing G and A and C and E a lot. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm not that good in guitar. So, I mean, I can sort of get by. Uh, well, but that's not why we're here, sir. We're here to talk everything leadership. I'm excited to explore three or four different topics with you. 
But I think where I would like to start is charisma. I would love to start with a question around charisma. And I'm going to ask you kind of charisma, what do we know? And I think what we what we know, I'll place in, in parentheses a little bit because, I mean, there's obviously some nuances. But it came across my Twitter feed the other day that you had been involved in some research of U.S. governors and their charisma and the impact that had on following guidelines. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. So let's start there. Let's start with charisma, kind of what do we know, and what kind of stays as a question at the forefront of your mind when we get to this topic? Well, it's a good way to work backwards into why I'm looking at charisma in the first place and why I let's say, completely broke uh, with, with the previous notions of what charisma is and how it's studied. So in the governor paper, which we, we just put out um, in uh, SCI uh, archives um, on open access, it's under review right now as we speak, we coded for the degree of charismatic content in governor's speeches over time. So it was over approximately two-month, uh, two-and-a-half-month uh, window. We are at the point where we understand charisma so well that we use deep neural networks to code for the charisma. Now, these have been trained on humans, and we can talk about that later. So we have an objective measure of charisma that's pure in the sense that it's behavior. It's what the governors actually said. And then we look at, over time, whether people physically distance or not. So first, we examined and made sure that these speeches were actually asking people to physically distance. Um, and then we saw if people actually physically distance. And it wasn't their pretend physical distance or cheap talk physical distance or intentions of physical distance. It was actual physical distance measured by smartphone movements in, in uh, all the different counties. So we could uh, estimate whether people actually moved or stayed at home based on historical evidence and what was currently happening over there. So what we find is over time, um, as governors were more charismatic on my conceptualization of charisma, people physically distance and, you know, we controlled for a bunch of, of things, you know, time effects, um, how many days uh, stay-at-home orders were in place, um, you know, number of deaths, uh, whatever, you know, we, we, ch we threw in the kitchen sink. Bottom line is if, if governors had been an average governor, one standard deviation more charismatic um, over a, a certain period of time that, that translates into thousands and thousands of lives saved by, uh, you know, so, and this is just mind boggling that people don't take leadership as seriously as they should. And, and what's also interesting is we noticed the governor's speeches were, were kind of distributed, positively skewed, meaning they were skewed towards zero. Um, and it's like they have no idea that charisma is important because if it was, there would be strongly negative skewed. You know, the, everyone would be charismatic and that was not the case. Humongous variation in observations of charisma. And then we followed it up with an um, incentivized laboratory study where we gave excerpts of speeches from real governors. Um, we masked who the governor was and then we asked people, you know, what would they do if they, they physically distanced if they, if they heard that speech? And then we asked them to try to guess what others would do and we incentivized that measure. And interestingly, we find that conservatives, who are the ones who we, we would like to influence a bit more because they're slightly more skeptical about COVID and distancing and care more about individual liberties, you know, they're the ones that are, that are most affected by charisma, interestingly. Wow. Well, talk a little bit about, for listeners, what's underneath when you talk about the behaviors. What are some of those behaviors? Is it vocal variety? Is it word choice? What are some ways that you're conceptualizing that? I find it fascinating. Well, let me just begin at the beginning about charisma per se, because 
is such a misunderstood um, construct. So we, we wrote a, a piece in the annual reviews of organization behavior and organization psychology, and it's titled Charisma, an Ill-Defined and Ill-Measured uh, Gift. And the problem was the following. You know, when, when Weber introduced the, the notion in the modern era, I mean, it predates Weber. It goes back to the, the three graces in ancient Greek mythology a long time ago. Um, so when Weber introduced the concept to social sciences, you know, he talked about these leaders having some kind of alchemic ability, some mystical quality, you know, a gift of grace that, that normal people didn't have. And, uh, you know, that distinguished them from these other normal people and they could accomplish great feats. So the sociological literature wrote a lot about these people with mystical qualities. But, you know, having mystical quality is beyond scientific uh, purview. You know, we can't study something that's some kind of alchemic ability, mystical quality that some people have and some people don't. So, you know, all the literature was written in a very abstract way. There was no one knew what was going on. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of theoretical accounts of charismatic leaders, but it wasn't properly defined. It was defined as if it was undefinable. So huh, how can you study something undefinable? So that was a big problem. Then Bob House came along and he wrote his 1976 theory of charismatic leadership, which triggered a lot of research. Bernard Bass wrote some stuff on it, a guy called James Downton, James McGregor Burns. But what happened is that, that they, they immediately jumped into using questionnaire measures to uh, measure charisma. And they didn't, again, define it properly. Like, you know, charismatic leaders are inspiring. You know, it's like kind of a circular thing. <laughs> um, you know, charismatic leaders are effective. You know, so if someone's effective, they must be by definition charismatic. So the definitions were very poor, number one. And number two, they used questionnaire measures, and questionnaire measures really sucked. You know, it's, it's a real, real big problem. Um, slowly, slowly at my journal, I'm rejecting a lot of research that uses these things because if you ask me, is person A charismatic, um, and I, I might respond on a questionnaire, but, you know, they can be charismatic for many reasons beyond their behavior, you know, treats me nice, is inspiring, uh, and whatever. So, you know, beyond the tautological measurements, the fact that I might rate you more or less charismatic doesn't just depend on what you do or what you say. It depends on your skin color. It depends on the symmetry in your face. It depends on so many factors, and the sum total of those then are reflected in the questionnaire. And, and then what do you do? How do you inform policy? You know, you tell people, be more inspiring. Okay, what the hell does it mean to be more inspiring? You know, act more powerful. Well, what does that mean? So basically, you know, the previous research has zero policy implication, zero, because there were so many confounding factors that feed into a questionnaire that we just don't know. So basically, you need to disentangle all these causes and measure them if you want to inform policy. And not one study has done that. Some attempted to do uh, manipulations, but again, they were very fuzzy and not very um, well thought out. So what we did is we said that charisma is basically symbolic, emotional, and value-laden leader signaling. So values meaning that you speak about your morals, your values, what you're defending. Symbolic means that you can speak in pictures. Emotion is that you can signal your emotions, your confidence, uh, your emotional state uh, with your body, what you say, and on your face. And these things are, are easy to observe, they're easy to code objectively, and they're easy to manipulate. Hmm. Well, and I imagine you could also do kind of the inverse of this whole study where you have governors who are charismatic but not caring, and the damage that was done in those situations. Yes. But again, in the speeches that we uh, looked at um, and, and we coded for, about 90% of the governors were actually asking people to socially distance and, and to try to take actions to mitigate COVID. So, yeah, I mean, I know there's some powerful leaders 
we won't mention names who didn't take things seriously in the beginning. And, you know, if you're charismatic and you don't take things seriously, that can cause huge problems and lead people down the garden path, you know, the typical Hitler problem. Yeah, I have a paper in my in my head right now called When Leaders Kill Their Followers, <laughs> right? I mean, because because they're influencing their behavior. And in some cases, those individuals die because of that influence. I mean, it's really, it's a fascinating phenomenon. And so charisma, can it be learned? This goes to the HBR article. Let's talk a little bit about learning charisma. I have a student right now that I'm working with, and she believes emphatically that it's, it wouldn't be me. It's acting. It's not who I really am. I don't think this can be something that's learned. So how do you respond to that? Well, um, the Harvard Business Review article we wrote it um, on, it was actually an invited article by HBR. They, they saw a paper we published in 2011 where we showed that charisma could be taught to normal people. So we had two studies. Uh, one was, was managers from a high-tech firm, and the second was uh, EMBAs from our university. Um, so to cut to the chase, I, I did that study because about six years before that, I saw a study that kind of dropped out of the sky. It was published in the journal Science showing that we could predict who would win an election by how intelligent they looked, how competent. And, and I, that really pissed me off because you know, as a professor of leadership, what am I supposed to teach if, if your success is already imprinted on your face, you know? Well, like I said, you got to get taller and you lower your voice and then you're a leader, right? Yeah, they're exogenously given. So, you know, I can't choose what I look like. So if I have a symmetrical face and competent and trustworthy looking face, you know, I'm going to earn more money in my lifetime. I mean, economists have, have established uh, and estimated the effect. They call it the beauty premium. This really bothered me. And I wanted to figure out, is there a way that we can get people to appreciate us beyond the initial impression? Because, you know, typically cognitive psychology shows us that people look at us, they sum us up, they look at our age, our sex, our height, our skin color, put a price on our tag. If we look like a million dollars, they fill in the blanks and assume we have lots of positive characteristics. If we don't, then we have a problem. So I, I try to figure out whether we could get beyond initial impressions by, by using charisma. So what did you find? Could it be learned? Yeah, so what we did do was first try to understand what were the tactics that leaders used to make themselves appear more charismatic. So that had to do with uh, essentially framing. Framing is attracting attention, getting people to focus on what you're saying, and that's using storytelling, metaphors, analogies, contrasts, rhetorical questions. Then the substance of what was being discussed, so what are we defending? How does it resonate with uh, the individuals you're trying to influence? Uh, what kind of strategic goals are you going after? And then the third major component is delivery. That's to do with the body language, the voice, and the, and the emotions. So it turns out that um, you know, once we could kind of unravel and break these tactics out and show um, individuals how to use them in practice, that they were able to actually do it. Um, so in the field experiment, we had a control group where we made people reflect on their personality, on their leadership. They knew they were going to be remeasured. They knew they were part of a study. So interestingly, they also increased, uh, you know, they were just, I don't know, maybe they just started acting nicer with their subordinates, what have you. So three months later, the control group increases, but the experimental group increased a lot more. Um, and then we did a, a kind of controlled lab study where we, we filmed students giving a speech before they knew what charisma was about. And then we taught them charisma. Then we filmed them giving the same speech. And then what we did is we put the speeches in a, in a hat and we randomly pulled out four speeches, always two time one speeches against two time two speeches. So we could control for the individual fixed effect. For example, I may be handsome. So if I'm handsome to one group of people time one, I'll still be handsome at time two. 
So, you know, we could take out the fixed effect of the person's look, their voice, whatever's constant, you know, they, they had to wear the same clothes, whatever. And then we looked at the change of charisma and whether it predicted anything. And it certainly did predict how they were seen, whether they were liked, whether they were seen as prototypical of a leader, and in which order they were ranked when they were in a group of four. We told them, you know, who's the best and who's the worst leader. So that strongly followed the extent to which charismatic tactics were being used. We controlled for communication skills, non-lexical utterances, how confident they felt. You know, nothing mattered apart from the use of these charismatic tactics. Yeah, and those who, those who employed them and did them well were perceived as leaders. Definitely, a lot more. They were perceived as more charismatic and more leader-like. And here's the funny part, which I think may speak to your student. In the beginning, a lot of them were like, Man, if I do this, people will know what I'm doing. They'll, they'll figure it out, uh, you know. And in debriefing the, the participants in the experiment who watched the videos, they, they had no idea what we actually did, what we manipulated, what we taught them. Um, they just thought, you, you know, we were looking at speeches or speech content because, you know, every student, uh, we had students that, that spoke on different things. You know, they had to fire 10% of their staff. They had to do change location, uh, they're speaking to Jack, who is derailed. You know, we had different topics. So they thought it was a, a, a topic thing. It wasn't a topic thing. It was actually the tactics. So this is actually explained by the illusion of transparency. Because people have information in them and they feel something or they know something, they believe that this leaks out and others are also aware of that. And that's just not true. People are very bad at guessing what my emotional state may be, unless I signal it transparently. So, you know, we can lie a lot better than what we believe we can. So this is the illusion of transparency phenomenon um, or the illusion of knowledge. And it didn't really matter what combination of tactics people use. You know, I asked them to use all of them, but, you know, some didn't use, I don't know, metaphors because it didn't resonate with them. You know, you just got to take these tactics and use the ones that resonate with you. Try to be as truthful and as honest to your own self and your own story and your own identity when you use them. And it really doesn't matter. You become it after a while. Um, so I, you know, what can I say? Some people are naturally more charismatic because they had better role models. They're more extroverted. They're smarter. They learned things by trial and error. But, you know, you can still learn this stuff. Well, I said to this individual, I said, I've seen you behave incredibly charismatically, especially in small group conversations. Something shifts for you when you're in front of a larger group, but I've seen some of those charismatic tactics. I've seen those in how you tell a story and how you engage a small group. I've seen that, but something shifts for you when you're in front of a group, or at least that was my perception, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the ancient Greeks also, um, drawing now from Phronesis, um, you know, they trained young men who were going to hold political office in the, in the art of oratory and, and how to speak. And for Aristotle, he was convinced this was the right thing to do. You know, either you move people with what he called contracts and torture, contracts meaning incentives or stick bayonets in their back, spears, they didn't have bayonets in those days, you know, or you can influence people through the art of leadership. Now, of course, there are ethical and moral consequences to what we do and how we do it and why we're using the persuasion. Are we doing it, you know, to solve coordination problems? Are we doing it to protect the public good? Are we doing it to manipulate others? So, you know, that's, that's another question entirely. But, but, you know, this was already uh, on the radar of, of the ancient Greeks where they wrote the first, you know, leadership development manual by way of Aristotle's works and Plato as well. Let's go there for a few moments. Leadership development. I saw in your bio that it mentions when you were at Yale, focusing on expertise. And I just wanted to explore that a little bit. Was that expertise in kind of the expertise literature, the, the branch of psychology, K. Anders Ericsson and, and those individuals? Is that how we're defining expertise? 
Well, it was sort of based on that, and and also the professor I worked with was Robert Sternberg, um, and 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 his interest in um, tacit knowledge. But at the end of the day, I tried to get into that literature, but I got interested in other aspects of of leadership very quickly because I, you know, it's very hard to to measure people's you know tacit knowledge and and things like that. So yeah, I mean that's where I went there originally was to study that. Well, how are you thinking about leader development or leadership development? If we go with kind of a day distinction, David Day distinction of the two, what are you thinking about right now? And even in your position as editor of Leadership Quarterly, what are you seeing that is cutting edge? I mean, the research you spoke of, of around charisma of the, the neural networks and actually using cell phone data, I mean, that feels to me very, very cutting edge. That sounds incredibly exciting. That sounds very, very exciting. What are you seeing in the leader development space that is exciting for you? And what are maybe some opportunities that you still think we haven't necessarily captured? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think the the world of practice doesn't realize how important leadership is. So not enough is done to properly select leaders and properly train leaders. You know, the process of becoming a doctor requires that one studies medicine and then one gets certified to practice and that one uses interventions that have been tested doesn't happen in leadership. You know, people become leaders for all sorts of reasons. One one paper that, uh, I mean, I, I published a follow-up paper in the journal Science where I showed little kids could identify who would win the election on the basis of the face. I mean, and there's nothing on the face that correlates with any bloody intrinsic quality that you may have in, in a normal range of individuals, uh, you know, who don't have any visible genetic uh, malformations. People become leaders for a whole bunch of other reasons other than that they're good at doing what they're doing or they're experts in the system. So this is a serious problem. So firstly, we need to focus more on on making the world of leader selection more professional. So not enough on that. You know, once that is done, then we can start thinking about leadership pipelines and training leaders and developing leaders using artificial intelligence. There's so much to be done. And it's like we're in the stone age of leadership right now. But I think one good thing that has happened, which is an awfully bad thing, is, is corona. Now that the corona fog is clearing, we're starting to realize how important leadership is. Political level leadership, governor level leadership, local level leadership, and in companies. So yeah, there's so much to be done. Well, even some of the basic definitions are confusing. It always amazes me to your, to your example of whether it's medicine or I was having a conversation on a previous episode with Bob Reamer. He's at the United States Air Force Academy. Imagine training a pilot and you don't have definitions that are clearly agreed upon for what's in the cockpit. I mean, it's just to your point, I think you said Stone Age. I couldn't agree more. I think how we select and how we then train, there's so much opportunity. It's, It's almost wide open. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Imagine, Scott, that we appointed doctors and pilots on how symmetrical their face was. I mean, this would be absolutely shocking, but that is the crap we are seeing right now. I'm sorry to speak in such um, rosy ways, but I'd, and, and excuse my French. Actually, I do speak French, but that wasn't French. That was, uh, but, but, you know, this is what's happening. I mean, I, I have a study right now in press. We took a random sample of TED Talks. You would hope that what predicts a TED Talk going viral is the content, right? So we code for content, we code for the type of speech given, we also take a photo of the person giving the TED Talk, and in our lab, we just ask our students, how attractive is this person? So basically, a standard deviation below the mean and above the mean in attractiveness increases TED Talk views by about 130%. It's, it's crazy. So people, you know, would rather see a more attractive TED Talk presenter than a less attractive, independent of the content. 
people earn more money as they go up the hierarchy if they're more symmetrical. Now, perhaps there's something on their face that, that helps uh, coordinate actions, gives in- investors more confidence. You know, th- th- there could be some legitimate effects which, which have nothing to do with how good I am, but which may affect what others think. But the point is that it's it's very unfair. It's not correct. Um, you know that that uh, people are being selected on how they look or on their skin color. You know, or how old they are, or if they're a woman or a man. You know, there's so much discrimination that goes out there. And here's the problem. The problem is this: when we discriminate on the basis of specious factors, first impressions, we're going to put someone who looks the role, you know, who's handsome but can't fly the damn plane. And and this is where we are. That's not who you want flying or doing the surgery. My head's in three or four different places right now, but it's, it's a very interesting conversation because we have an opportunity, in my mind, and, even, and that's why I was going down some of the expertise literature, and I know Sternberg had written on that topic, of course, and, but the work of Kay Anders Ericsson, at least for me, has some clues about how we help people work at some of the highest levels. You know, even the, the, the notion of deliberate practice and... A very, very simple explanation of deliberate practice would be, you know, time, repetition, real-time coaching and feedback, and, you know, working on skills outside of your current ability level. So we started with the instrument that I can no longer pronounce that you play. What was that called again? The Cretan Lyra. Okay, the Cretan Lyra. If we want to create, you know, a world-class player in John, you know, 15, 20 years, repetition, real-time coaching and feedback, we find you people who can guide your learning and scaffold it. And then working on music or skills outside of your current ability level for for all of that time. And when we look at, again, leader development, people are going to work today, but they aren't intentionally practicing anything. A good number of them, they don't necessarily have real-time coaching and feedback. They're repeating things, but maybe some of those are really, really bad behaviors. And there's an opportunity. I, I can't wait, John, for us to have an actual holodeck, a virtual reality or just augmented reality holodeck where we can actually put people in simulations and help them develop, help them grow, put them in scenarios like a flight simulator where we can actually perform analytics, real analytics, right? Yeah, let, let me say a couple of things on that point. I'm, You know, Obviously, we can't just take anyone and make them start cutting people open up and removing appendices. So I think music is something where some people may have an intrinsic talent. You know, Beethoven, Mozart, they they could write symphonies already at the age of seven with zero practice. So I think in, in the music sphere... The intrinsic talent and, uh, you know, coming from the genes is, plays a massive, massive role. So, you know, if some people just don't have a musical ear. You can train them a hundred years to play the violin. They, they will never play the violin. Same thing with mathematical ability. Some people just don't get it, you know. Um, but I do agree, you know, some things with deliberate practice we can improve. If a person has a reasonable level of intelligence, they should be able to learn and improve. So I agree with you, um, though there is, there is a genetic component, and that genetic component affects intelligence, which is the ability to learn at least the modern definition of it, and that's not really something we can change too much. But I did come back full circle to expertise. Um, I wrote a paper with Bob House um, that we published in 2005 or six, titled Instrumental Leadership Beyond uh, Transformational and Transactional, and Instrumental leadership is exactly about what you said. It's about expert leadership. Uh, Do you understand the strategic environment in which you're operating? How to select a strategy? Do you know how to give your expertise and path goal clarifications and monitor outcomes? So that's like a 
purely nothing to do with you know um, values and exciting and being emotional. It's like task-focused leadership. And we found, at least in the paper we published in 2004, five, I don't remember, um, that it is a much stronger predictor of outcomes than is uh, transformational or transactional leadership. So you know, I like to say, even though I'm studying charisma and all that stuff, you know, I'm not getting on a plane if the pilot doesn't know how to fly. It. I don't care how charismatic they are, how beautiful they are. You know, and and you know. I've got papers showing how beauty helps, how charisma helps. But, you know, that's all the, in French, we say it's the glaçage. You know, it's the glazing and it's the cherry on the top of the cake. You know, the cake is, is expertise. So, yeah, just to go back to what you said earlier on, expertise is really important. Knowing the nuts and bolts of the organization is important. Knowing how to manage is important. Of course, the human touch is also important. How to manage humans is also a skill that's important. But, you know, all these factors are not really fed into selection mechanisms for putting leaders where they belong. They, they get there for other reasons. Yeah. Kind of last topic before we wind down, and this is really focused on what you're seeing. You'd mentioned artificial intelligence. I mentioned a moment ago virtual and augmented reality. Are you seeing a passion topic of mine is technologies enabling disruption. So you could go 5G, sensor technology, virtual augmented reality, blockchain, artificial intelligence. We can kind of go down the list of a number of these innovations that are converging to create new business models, new opportunities. Are you seeing any of that kind of being incorporated into the leadership literature? Are you seeing anything on that front right now? Have you seen anything around blockchain and leadership or sensor technology and leadership? I can envision a space, John, where we would get into a lot of moral and ethical discussions here. Put that aside again to your charisma statement a few moments ago. We could probably have someone wear a device where how they communicate all day long is being recorded. And we could probably perform some analytics on are they showing up as inspirational or as demotive? Are they a dementor, right, from the Harry Potter sense? And provide, again, the analytics and the data and help people improve if that's their objective. Are you seeing anything on that front? Well, yes. Uh, one of my colleagues, Marianne Schmidt-Must, she's in the OB department uh, of our uh, faculty. She's my neighbor, <laughs> not here <laughs> at home at the office. So she and I have a common interest. We work with uh, IDEAP. IDEAP is the social sensing laboratory of the Federal Institute of Technology of Lausanne. And we work with two separate groups. I work with people who do NLP, natural language processing. She does that and uh, social sensing, emotional sensing, and those kind of analytics. MIT also, I know they've, they've been working on developing sensors. So I much more trust pure behavioral data based on biological or other features that are beyond, um, you know, me reporting my impressions of something, you know. Or the self-report, to your point, the survey. Exactly. Or, All yeah. that is, honestly, I don't trust this anymore. And, and, you know, we are at the point now where we can use technology to get true behavioral measures. There's a special issue in LQ called Beyond the Ritualized Use of Questionnaires toward a science of true leadership theory and practice or something like that. And the whole point of this is to show that questionnaires actually have led us down the garden path. So much has been done, and so much of it is absolutely useless to informing policy because all these studies don't actually identify causal effects. They just identify correlations and associations. So yeah, I think more is being done. A few people are starting to take advantage of this, but I think in leadership and in management in general, you know, we, we've got to take a lot more um, advantage of like topic modeling. You know, qualitative researchers 
who, you know, read stuff and report on their opinions and interpretations. Those are highly idiosyncratic. If I look at that, if you look at that, if a hundred people look at it, we'll come up with a hundred different uh, ideas about what's in there because we're going in there with a priori expectations. A computer program doesn't have that. So, you know, topic modeling, I think, is something that is just not used enough. Deep neural networks, I think that's the future. Uh, every student should learn how these things work and, and what they do. And I think then we should be beginning to integrate them in, in learning. Like, you know, what Google did with AlphaZero, self-reinforced deep neural network learning. I mean, unbelievable stuff. The, this program, yeah, in a day, it's got superhuman abilities in chess and, you know, using very simple trial and error learning mechanisms. Now, how can we harness these to solve problems, to create vaccines, to give people uh, on the fly um, feedback on their leadership? You know, there's so much we can do. And biology is taking advantage of that. Physics is taking advantage of that. Some other sciences, but social sciences, we are just too slow. And, you know, we think that computers, because they don't have emotions, you know, we, they, they, they can't act like us. But certainly they can do many tasks much better than we can. And so for listeners, please watch AlphaGo. It's about the company DeepMind. They're a Google company now, but they invented this, this neural network that basically beat the best human in the world in the game Go. And what's interesting, a couple of things that are interesting about this, and I'll put, I'll put a link to the movie. It's on YouTube in the show notes. In the game Go, according to the film, there are more potential options than atoms in the universe, options of moves. So this machine that they invented is not going with if-then statements. It's thinking. And in fact, it was playing the game in ways that humans wouldn't when they got into it. It was really fascinating. But imagine that, John. I mean, okay, so I've got my augmented reality contact lenses. And the system knows I'm having a really bad day and I'm failing badly. And I get a little red light in my eye that says, hey, take a couple breaths and check yourself because your vitals are not where they need to be. And how you're communicating is not going to get you where you want to be. I mean, that real-time feedback and coaching, we could be using technology in some really, really interesting ways. Yeah, we have that for driving. I mean, you drive a Tesla or a new Volvo or I, what I have now, Subaru. You know, if you're not driving very well, the, the thing shows a cup of coffee saying, hey, dude, you should pull over, take a break here. You know, you're know, you not driving properly. You know, I start to derail. Hey, you know, the steering wheel corrects me. You know, we could have the same stuff with leadership. John, you're being an asshole right now. Shut <laughs> up, you know. Listen, listen to what the person's saying, you know. Well, and, and think about the ramifications across domains. So, you know, parenting or relationships. John, you're going to be divorced if you continue to communicate this way. But, you know, people are just so scared of this, you know, like I, I was talking to someone the other day, you know, we have a, a machine that can instantly give you the charisma score of a speech. We're going to be writing up the paper now for the validation. But, you know, it took me like five years of, of hard work thinking, working with a couple of uh, experts in uh, signal processing. These are electrical engineers, computer scientists. You know, now this thing can do this job very, very well. Just like deep neural networks can identify, you know, skin lesions that are cancerous much better than the best dermatologist. But it's the only thing it can do. You know, it's not going to suddenly evolve into controlling all the bank accounts of the world. You know, it can't even tie my shoelace. You know, it just does one thing very well. So 
I think we shouldn't be scared of these technologies. Many people have said crazy stuff that these machines are going to take over us and kill us. They don't have any intent. And the humans are the ones who are the problem. You know, I can, I can use physics to develop a nuclear bomb or I can use it to do radiation therapy and cure cancer. Chemistry, we can develop chemical weapons, we can whatever. You know, it's the humans that are the problem. It's not the technology. And we can do so much harm and so much good. But we need to harness the power of technology to solve the world's problems. It's the future and it's the only way we're going to survive on this planet is we need to embrace technology. Well, just even imagine, and then we'll wind down in a moment, but I am in Cleveland, Ohio. We have a gentleman here named Charlie Lougheed, who I should have on the podcast. He sold his company to IBM Watson Health. It was called Explorus. He started a new company using blockchain and artificial intelligence. It's called Actual. And essentially what they're doing is they're trying to solve a multi-billion dollar problem. When a physician is hired, it usually takes about 90 days before they're credentialed. Well, for an organization, especially now during COVID, when you have upwards of a thousand of your medical staff offline because they're sick or they're quarantining, you need these people that you've hired practicing medicine as quickly as possible. And the average physician is making $8,000 a day, and that's billions of dollars. So he's actually putting these credentials on the blockchain so that we can turn the switch on day one. Well, imagine if from a leader development perspective, we have some type of learning progress, some type of learning journey where we can actually validate that this individual has at least been, you know, it takes what, 25, 30, 40 years to create a general in the military. And that's not perfect, but it's scaffolded learning over a career. And could we scaffold that learning? I, I think there's, there's so many fun, wonderful opportunities. There just is. Yeah, I agree with you so much. And, you know, when you said I have many different hats, you know, one of the other hats I have is about 30% of what I publish is on statistics and on how to properly estimate models. And I, and I just pulled out a book because if you look behind me on the video, you know, all, all the books here are on econometrics. This is on microeconometrics. So, you know, I, I teach a class called On Making Causal Claims um, on our PhD program. And we have another class on econometrics. I think before we do anything, we need to just go back and figure out what works and what doesn't work and what is the causal impact of doing A on B. A lot of the literature done in the last 50 years is pretty much useless for policy. So I think we need to go back to basics, do some clean experiments, use clean behavioral measures, and then we can build this, this scaffolding uh, really on, on firm concrete and not on jello that we have right now. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's really a big problem. I mean, I've, I've done now like four or five papers where we show it, but 90% of articles that make claims, causal claims, are false. These causal claims are not supported by the design used and the evidence that they have. And, and that's a massive problem. So, you know, econometrics is one thing that I think the observational researcher in our field needs to learn. And if they don't do that, then they better do experiments. Yeah. Well, John, I, I hope sometime we can go down that road. Your vision of what the next steps for our field should be from, a, again, back to basics, rebuild, and then we can, we can base policy off of some of what it is, the work that we're doing. And, and our educational initiatives can be rooted in sound thinking as well. Not that there hasn't been good thinking. It's all brought us to where we are. But I think, to your point, it's an evolution. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there has been some good work, like I said, about 80% of the 
papers have huge problems. So there, there is some good work out there. Now, I'd be happy to, to engage on, on this because I'm very interested in how to design consequential and policy-relevant experiments and especially field experiments. And you know who's leading the way in the social sciences right now in field experiments? It's economics. You know, they went from not doing experiments to doing like tons of field experiments. You know, uh, Esther Duflo, she won the Nobel Prize two years ago. She's a field experimentalist. That's what she does. And, and you know, we we gotta, we got to do stuff that's relevant in the field and we need to know what's going on in the field. Yes, we're too far from the field. And when we go to the field, it's, again, to your point, these, these self-report surveys that do us very little good. You know the quote by, uh, I forget the name of the guy, he was a Harvard professor and he became the CEO of Caesars um, Casinos. And he said, there's three ways you can get fired from my firm. You know, one is if you steal, uh, if you goof off or whatever, or cheat. And then the third way is if you run an experiment and you don't have a control group. Well, John, when I close out the podcast, I always ask listeners what they are reading, streaming, or listening to. And it doesn't have to be anything having to do with leadership or economics or statistics. It could just be something that's caught your attention lately. So what are some things that have caught your attention in recent months? Well, a book that I'm reading uh, right now, I'm almost at the last chapter, is called Stoner. Unbelievable book. It was written about 50 years ago, 60 years ago in the US by, I think, a guy called John Williams. The, the title is just called Stoner, and it's about a professor. So I think uh, all of you uh, who are listening either will be a professor or aspiring to be a professor or are professors. It's an amazing book. It's written in the most crisp and engaging prose I've read. I've ever read. I mean, I think this is probably the best writer I've ever read. I read a lot. Read up about this book, Stoner. It became a best-selling book now, like 50, 60 years after it was published. People didn't realize what a great book it was. And it really shows the life of being a researcher, a professor. But it's, a, it's an incredibly sad, but incredibly beautiful. And at the same time, I find very happy story about a guy who goes from a farm, becomes a professor and dies, and everything that happens in between. So Stoner, get that book, read it. Excellent book. I will put it in the show notes. John Antonakis, thank you so much, sir. We appreciate your time today. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about. And uh, for that, we are very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for the invitation. Be well. What a really fun conversation with John Antonakis. I think the practical wisdom for me here, it's a couple things. One, he, towards the end of the podcast, he started talking about going back to basics. And I think as a field, we have some opportunities to rethink, reconceptualize, and move forward in different directions to shift our learning. And another observation for me, and for those of you who listen often, you know that this is a, a side passion of mine. Uh, how can we use technology to help us in that endeavor? To try new things, approach new problems in different ways, and old problems <laughs> in different ways as well, uh, in the spirit of learning and progress. As always, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Be well. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. 
If you like phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.